0: You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled Quotes. Hello my radio friends. Welcome to today's program. Recently I was reading some of the witty quotes uttered by the wartime Prime Minister of England, Winston Churchill. Churchill was a man of conviction and often faced powerful opposition from influential people. Although I'm not an admirer of Churchill's lifestyle, I do admire him for his ready wit and for his convictions. I suspect that Churchill although he made no pretense of being a Christian, was one of the most influential people in securing the freedoms enjoyed by millions of people in the world today. And today, I want to share with you some of Churchill's quotes, coupled with some of the quotes of Jesus. Here and there, I may throw in some other quotes of other origins. And there are some similarities between what Churchill and Jesus said. But first, on one occasion, Lady Astor approached Winston with a remark expressing her dislike of him. Here is the interchange. Lady Astor says, Winston, if I were your wife, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Winston answered, Nancy, If I were your husband, I'd drink it. Jesus also had a ready wit. The Jewish Pharisees, lawyers and scribes tested him on numerous occasions and were totally outmatched by his wise answers. One day, after long discussions together about how they could trap Jesus into a catch-22 situation, a group of pharisees with some herodians as witnesses approached Jesus with a question first they attempted to flatter him and then asked what do you think is it lawful to pay taxes to caesar and that's from matthew 22:17 now if he answered yes the pharisees would accuse him of betraying his own people and of being in league with the romans whom the Jews regarded as their enemies. If he said no, the Herodians in the group would report him to the Roman overlords who would then probably treat him as a rebel and seek to kill him. Herodians belonged to a political group that supported the Roman overlords. And Jesus' answer was absolutely brilliant. And I'll read the relevant passage From Matthew 22, verses 19 to 21. They said, Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And then verse 22 adds, When they heard what he said, they marveled and left him and went their way. On another occasion, a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law approached Jesus with a victim and with a legal question. And I'll read to you from John 8, verses 3 to 11. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they'd set her in the midst, they said to him, "'Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery.' in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus' answer foiled even their cleverest lawyers. Personally, I have admiration for people who are good with words and quick to give wise answers. Jesus is not only my Saviour, but is far more intelligent than any of the so-called men of wisdom of all ages. His wisdom far surpasses that of anyone living on earth back then and now. Take, for example, what Jesus said about one's enemies you can read what he said in the gospel of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 and here's what he said but I tell you love your enemies bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you and pray for those who mistreat you and persecute you many people would say that I oh, is completely stupid But when you consider the implications, his advice is so superior. By loving one's enemies, you're not trapped in a pool of hate with constant thoughts of revenge. The desire for revenge is like constantly being followed around by a big ugly monster 24-7. By loving your enemies, and by wanting to do good to them, you are liberated from your own intense negativity and you can get on with your life without disagreeable, anxious thoughts constantly pervading your mind. And there's a possible positive outcome. By loving your enemies, you may well up uh, end up gaining a friend from your enemy. And of course, as an example of a true Christian, you may be an influence to help win your enemy to Christ. One statement of Churchill's that applies to many situations in which we could find ourselves is this. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. The courage to continue is what counts you know there have been some very successful entrepreneurs and business people in the world who have once been very wealthy but due to bad decisions or because of some circumstance they were unable to control they lost their wealth and became bankrupt it amazes me how with very few resources but with the drive to succeed they again became successful. One person like that was Walt Disney. While his name is now a brand worth nearly $130 billion, Walt Disney was once a struggling filmmaker. He launched his first film studio called Laugh-O-Gram in 1920 but problems arose when his backing firm went broke. No longer able to pay his employees or cover his debts, he was forced to file for bankruptcy. He later went on to form a new company, Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio, thanks to a loan from his parents and brother. Disney came close to bankruptcy again, when he ran into financial trouble in the midst of the production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This time, a bank loan saved the day. He was able to fund his staff and studio through the completion of the film, which became a commercial success. Walt Disney, while he may not have been aware of Churchill's statement, certainly had the courage to continue, even while having to deal with failure. In Australia, a classic example of a wealthy man who lost his fortune and Order of Australia award was Alan Bond. In 1992, Mr Bond was declared bankrupt and in the same year was jailed after being found guilty of charges arising from the collapse of Rothwell's bank. He won a retrial, was released from prison, and was later acquitted. But in 1996 he was jailed again, this time over the purchase of the famous painting by Monet. And in 1997 he received a further jail term, after pleading guilty to using his controlling interest in Bell Resources to siphon $1.2 billion into his bond corporation. He was released from prison in 2000 after serving four years, saying he wanted to get on with his life. He said, I found that in prison that I had more time to read the Bible I had more time to contemplate life and more time to look upon my fellow man, he said. And I worked very hard during the period in there to help other people in the same situation. And I think that even in the most dastardly people there is a goodness there and you've got to find that goodness. Alan Bond later became very wealthy again. Jesus said much the same as Churchill but used different words. Two statements are found, one in Matthew 5 verses 11 and 12 and also 39 to 41. And I'll share with you his first statement. He said, Blessed are you when men shall revile and persecute you and shall say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my name's sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. I find it a real puzzle why people down through the ages have wanted to persecute Christians just because they were or are Christians. Christians are generally really nice people and are law-abiding, helpful, and kind. Now, we're going on with another statement, but we're going to have a little break first.
1: Splendor of Heaven Knowing His Destiny Was the Lord (muchas) i <muchas>
0: Churchill once remarked, You have enemies. Good. That means you've stood up for something. A modern counterpart to that statement is this. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Jesus did not advocate abandoning Christianity. Instead, he advocated continuing on in the Christian lifestyle and beliefs, having the courage to continue while keeping the glorious eternal rewards in mind. I know of people who have been injured, disowned, isolated and sometimes tortured and imprisoned because they believed in Christ and his promises. Yet they were prepared to put up with what happened to them for Christ's sake. Maybe you've been teased, threatened or badly treated because of your faithfulness. Don't give up. The eternal rewards are far greater than the problems we may have to endure during this short lifetime we have here on earth. Another significant saying of Churchill was this, The true guide of life is to do what is right. According to Dr. Ramsay, Professor of Modern History at Queen Mary's College, London, The Judeo-Christian tradition inspired Churchill's devotion to the cause of good against evil. I think it is laudable that Churchill, although not a recognised Christian, was a man who endeavoured to be sincere, true-hearted and righteous. In a strange kind of way, it appeared that God may have used him to carry out his purposes, eventually leading to the defeat of the attacking Germans in World War II. But how did Jesus promote the cause of good? Firstly, he was good and did good to others. His lifestyle was such that he was sinless. In other words, Jesus practiced what he preached. By what he said and by what he did, Jesus set a goal for his followers and for all mankind. That goal is in Matthew 5.48 as part of the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached, sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I've heard a lot of discussion about this statement by Jesus. Some have said, Because we have a sinful nature, human beings can never become perfect. They are flawed from the start. Others have said, Because we have sinned, we are marred by even one sin, and therefore cannot be perfect, even though we may never do any further wrongs. Commentators have noted that the perfect referred to is not a degree that one attains, but rather is a goal to which we should aspire. In other words, it is something that we try to emulate by taking on God's characteristics. Another commentator has remarked on the translation of the Greek word, which in the English Bibles reads as perfect. He says a better translation would be mature or complete. Jesus condoned living a life where one does what is right. In the parable of the talents as recorded in Matthew 25, Jesus told a parable to illustrate another point. He was talking about what people do with their lives and the reward or punishment they will get at the end. In the case of the first two servants who made progress with what they were given, here is the pronouncement the Master made to them. Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and enter your Master's happiness and I like the way the King James Version of the Bible concludes these verses, it says, Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. The parable approves of those who do good, who make an effort for improvement, especially with their own characters. In a practical sense, how can someone make self-improvement? Well, the answer is found in Philippians 4 verse 8 which says finally brothers whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think on these things this advice It's all about controlling one's own mind. But there is more. By reading books that are about worthwhile subjects and have something more to offer than entertainment, there is a natural uplift of your thoughts. The same goes for what you watch on TV. Watching trashy soapies does nothing for character improvement it is far better to learn something useful than seeing actors portray things like jealousy, lust, deception, sensual pleasure, broken promises and a whole lot more garbage that degrades rather than elevates the mind. It is probably because of my desire to do what is good to others and myself that I choose not to read novels. I much rather read true stories about bravery, endurance, honor, and faithfulness. I find this kind of reading much more uplifting and character building. You parents, give your children good books to read, and don't park them in front of the TV so they will just be quiet. Children's television, especially cartoons, present some quite sublime negative messages cloaked in the guise of entertainment. Monitor what your children take into their minds so that they get wholesome mental and moral food. And although there are many more wisdom quotes that are worthy of our attention... I'd like to share one more of Churchill's because it has some huge implications. Churchill once said, When the eagles are silent, the parrots begin to jabber. That means when great men do not stand up for what is good and right, then society and morals decline. There is a story in the Old Testament in Judges 9 about the trees wanting to have a new king. The trees wanted a new king. First asked was the olive. It refused, saying that what it produced was good and needful. Then the fig was asked, but it refused too, saying that it saw no point to stop producing its lovely fruit just in order to be king. Then the grapevine was asked, but it felt that it should not discard its responsibility to humanity of producing grapes to make delicious wine. Finally, the trees asked the thorn bush to be their king. It accepted, but with the condition that all the other trees be subject to it. This is a parable, but it illustrates what Churchill so wisely said. In a letter to Thomas Mercer, Edmund Burke wrote, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Do you know what is right? Stand up for it. Do you see evil practices happening? Do something to stop them. Evil triumphs when good men do nothing. So, to tie together what Churchill and Edmund Burke have said, I want to finish today with a quote from Jesus. It is found in Luke 11 verse 33. He said, No one puts a la- lights a lamp and puts it where it is hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Good people need to be noticed and need to be a force of influence in society. Otherwise, less noble people will become the leaders. And here is my challenge to you. We need to be like Daniel, who stood up for what he believed and stood up for what is right. Will you stand up and stand out for the right, just as Jesus and Winston Churchill did